I found a couple facts online uh, that are weird but true. So, you know, one of those things that you sort of read it and you kind of go like, no, there's no way that's true, but it actually is true, you know, like that. And I, I don't know about you, but I find that stuff kind of fascinating, like, huh, who knew? Like, I, I, I like sort of the hidden nature of things. I love podcasts about all that kind of stuff. So I found a couple I wanted to share them with you. They'll put them up on the screen. Number one, there are more tigers in captivity in the United States than there are in the wild worldwide. Why are we hoarding the tigers? There's the question. I, I'd like to know, why do we have all the tigers? Did we decide that that's the thing that we need to keep all the tigers? And I'm sure it has something to do with how they survive in the wild and all that. I don't know. But apparently we have a lot of tigers in this country. And we have more than the rest of the world has just roaming free. It's kind of, kind of weird, but true. Second one, a typical cumulus cloud weighs about 1.1 million pounds. Does that mess with your head a little bit? Like it messes with mine? Like, what is a million pounds doing in the sky above my head? And why hasn't it come down here? Why is it still up there? I don't understand this. Apparently, it does come down. It's called rain. But for a while, it floats up there and weighs a million pounds. It makes no sense to me at all, but it's true. Here's another one. Cheetahs can't roar. They just meow like domestic cats. Isn't that strange? If you met a cheetah in the wild, and they're like, you're like terrified, right, until they meow, and then you're like, come here, come here, and you're just like, want to rub them under the neck or whatever, you're like, hi there, you know, I don't know, maybe they can take your hand off, I don't know, but, but that's weird, they meow. A woman named Violet Jessup survived the sinking of both the Titanic and its sister ship, the Britannic. What's up with that? Like, she literally, she survived both sinkings. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine when she's on the second ship? And it starts to go down, and she's like, oh, I've seen this before. Let me tell you how this is going to be. Everyone's going to scream. We're all going to run to the lifeboats. Everybody, get in a boat, even if they're like half full. Everybody, just get in one. You, young couple, both of you can fit on that piece of wood. You just get up there on it. You're going to be fine. Just, just you're, it's, it's going to work out, right? Like, that's so, how unlucky is she? Or lucky, I don't know. She's something, like, that is bizarre that she survived both of those. Here's another one. Nearly the entire continent of South America is located east of Florida. Look at the map. Did you know this? I did not know this. I thought it was down there, South America. It is. Apparently, it's down there and over there as well. And I just did not, I did not know. But when you look at it, you're like, oh, man, the whole thing. Because I don't know about you, but Florida's the end of the earth. Like, in, in the way you think of it, you're like, it's certainly the end of your life ends in Florida. But the end of, the end of, hey, I grew up down there. I know this to be true. Uh, but the end of, but the end of the continent, you're like, oh, there's nothing, you know. No, South America is actually East America or something. Like, I, who knew? That's weird, right? Here's another one. According to the definition of what a berry is, a banana is a berry, but a strawberry is not. <laughs> what? What? True. You did not think about it, but it is so true. So you go order that berry mix salad or whatever, ask for bananas next time because the strawberry is right out. That's weird, right? These are interesting facts. Uh, and then here, I've got, I've got one more that I want to give you, and this one um, I think is true. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer said that. Now, that's not as fun, but I think it is completely true, and it's one of those things that when you first read it, you go, that can't be true. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us? No way is that true. I can think of lots of other things that are more important about me, but I would argue that that actually is true. What you think about God affects everything else about your life, whether you recognize it or not. If a couple comes to me and their marriage is struggling, I want to know about the struggles that they're having in their marriage. I also want to know what they think about God because it's going to affect 
that situation. If, if someone is struggling with substance abuse and they're dealing with alcohol or drugs or whatever, I want to know about what it is that's triggering that and where that's all going. But I also want to know what they think about God because that's going to affect everything. This is why in, in AA, they point you to immediately a higher power because that affects everything. If you're going to go to school and you're going to study and you're going to say, I want to, I want to study astronomy and I want to study physics and, 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 and all of this stuff, what you believe about God matters in those contexts. Uh, the God question touches every other question in life. Now, you may think that's an overstatement. You'd say, not really. I mean, atheists get married. It's not like the God question matters, but it's like, no, it, it did matter. At some point over dinner, they were like, you believe in God? Nope. You? Nope. Good. We're good. All right, then we'll just, we'll just keep doing that. Like, the question's been answered, whether it was stated out loud or, or not. The question has been has been answered. The God question is in the background of all the other questions. This is why in the ancient world, theology, the study of God, was called the queen of the sciences. It basically works like a flowchart. If it, you say, is God, does, is God real and knowable? Does God exist? Those kind of questions. If yes, then here. And then you start going through philosophy, and you go through reason, and you go through morality, ethics, and how you build society, and what you believe about laws, and all of that stuff kind of flows out of the God question. Or you say, if God, does God exist? You say, no. Then you start going down a whole other tree of, of reason and, and then the science. And then you get sort of build all of these things out. You go down all these trees after you've answered the God question and you get to science. And eventually you get to your iPhone. And then you get to what picture you snapped of your dinner last night. And that's the entire progression all the way down in your life. But if you go all the way back up to the top, the, the question is, wh what do you believe about God? Because it informs all of the other questions in life. Now, you might expect me to say that because I'm a preacher, right? So, of course, the, the preacher is going to say that theology, the God question, is the most important question. If I was, you know, a math teacher, uh, you know, if I was really into algebra, I might be up here like, you know, algebra is the most important thing. And, and because you have PTSD about math from school, you're like, algebra is definitely not the most important thing. But, I'll, you know, so you, you might expect that I would say that, but it's not just me saying this. Uh, there's a, there's a, a writer and scientist named Robert Jastrow, and he wrote a... a, a a pretty popular book back in the 70s. Uh, in 1978, he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And Jastrow was an agnostic. And he wrote a book about the Big Bang Theory, about the history of it, the science of it, who taught what, when, kind of the, the, the history of the school of thought through the Big Bang of, of the, the universe is, is expanding. But if you go backwards in time, 13 billion years, whatever, it was at a single point, and then it exploded. And so he wrote a book about that. And what's very interesting to me, because he's an agnostic, look at what he says at the very, very last sentences of the book. I want to put it up on the screen for you. He says this, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, how about that, scientist and faith in one sentence, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. What's he saying? He's saying you can trace the science back, and you can go back and back and back, and you can look at the thing, and you can get back through history to the point that you would say the Big Bang is here. And when you get there, you're going to find people answering the God question. They're going to be saying... Uh, yeah, it went bang. Who made it go bang? Let's start. Now we have to answer that question. Let's, so trace it back far enough. You will eventually get to this question about God. Is, is, he, uh, is he real and, and can we know him and, and that kind of stuff? And the reason this is so important to us is because the God question speaks to another question that we have. We are haunted by an identity question. We are haunted by the question, who am I? Who am I? 
And how you answer the God question affects how you answer the who am I question. If God is real and he's a creator, then I am his creation. And if I am made in his image, if I believe that, that says some things about me, about who I'm supposed to be. My core identity is defined by, by him. How you answer the who am I question, how you answer the God question shapes how you will live. It's actually the most important thing uh, about you. If you'd say, man, all I am really is just an evolved ape, then you're probably going to act that way. If you say men are pigs and you're a man and you go, well, I'm a pig. I guess I can just function in that way and I'm surprised anybody expects me to be anything else because we've just established that's, that's what we are. What you believe about God says a whole lot about what you believe about yourself and your core identity. Now, historically, we have spoken of identity. Or we've dealt with identity in one of two ways. Um, we've answered the who am I question one of two ways. Number one, in a lot of cultures in the world today, and through most cultures throughout history, your identity was formed by your family. It's the family of origin that you're in. It is your tribe. It is your people. So much so that we even added last names based on that thing. So if your family's a, a group of farmers, you would get the last name farmer. If your family was, we, well, we bake things, they'd be like, you're the bakers. You're like, oh, we, we're, we're milling, you know, and they go, oh, you're the Miller family. Like, that's literally where some of these names came from, is that our identity was formed by the tribe of people that we came out of. And that is true in a lot of the world today. Who you are is not something you pick. It is defined for you by the tribe you find yourself in. That's where your identity is located. So historically, we've done that. And then the other thing we do about identity, which I think is more a modern Western world way of looking at identity, is we say, who am I? I am whoever I want to be. I am going to self-define this. Forget the shackles of tradition and family and all of those people and ethnic groups. That's, that system's a whole mess. I am going to self-define. I'm going to get to say, in, in, this, in this sort of experiment that we're in in America of radical free will, I'm going to get to choose everything about my identity, and I'm going to define for myself who I am. And we're raising a generation of, of, of kids who are growing up like, in my, my generation, we were told you can be whatever you want to be, and, and this generation's taking that as far as that will go. We're, we're, we're taking that idea, you, you can be whatever. You, I, I thought that meant be an astronaut. It means a whole wide range of things today, right? And so we're, we don't know where that's going to end as a society. We're in an experiment of this radical free will thing that you can pick your identity and, and, and kind of do what you want with it. So are those... Are, only options. Can we, can, we, can we look at identity differently besides I just choose it or the family chose it for me? Um, well, in Colossians 2 that we're going to look at today, uh, we've been studying through in this series called Rooted, we've been studying through the book of Colossians. And in Colossians 2, Paul is going to talk a lot about Jesus, like he, like he do, and he's going to talk a lot about who we are in relation to that and, and how we get into that, into that relationship. And Paul does this in his letters. If you read through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Corinthians, these books in the New Testament that Paul wrote, which are letters to churches, what you'll notice is, kind of the broad sweep of them, what you'll notice is that Paul, in the first half of his letters, writes about identity. He writes about who you are, who Jesus is, his supremacy, how you fit in with him, what the gospel is, how you are connected. He writes all that stuff. And then in the second half of the letter, he writes a lot of, because you are this, 
Here's, who, here's what you need to do. And he talked about family relationships. He talked about work. He talked about a lot of that like really practical stuff that we look at in the Bible. But don't just read the last half of the letter. Don't just read the practical stuff without understanding the root identity stuff. And so here at Colossians 1 and in chapter 2 that we're going to look at, he goes into that identity stuff. And this is crucial for us to understand because one of the biggest challenges we have in our culture today is around identity. We root our identity in our sexuality, which is historically a very new thing to do and very unusual. We root our identity in our politics. People are more likely to um, give up their faith than they are to give up their political party because we, we treat it as it's so core. We root our identity in our gender. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm, you know, I, I'm these things, right? We root our identity in our, 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 our country, our nationalism. We reach out and grab any kind of meaning we can find. And the challenge is our culture sort of moves and shifts and redefines those things so often that we're, we're, we're ending up latching ourselves to identities that are constantly in flux. And so Paul points us to something different. Colossians 2, we, we read through some of it last week. We're going to start here with verse 8. He says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All right, this is a little bit connected to what we said last week. Paul says, hey, check your brain. Think about what you're thinking about here. Think clearly about the times that we're in and don't let anybody hold you captive. Literally, in Greek, it's it, don't let people make a slave out of you in, in, in your thinking. Don't let people grab hold of you and, and, and get you into these uh, ridiculous ideas that kind of float around in, in, in the culture. Uh, don't let that happen. And, and then he starts pointing us to who Christ is, and in a minute he'll say who we are, but in, he says uh, these things are apart from Christ, and then he mentions Christ, and he says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, that sounds like a sentence we could go think about under a tree for like 70 years and keep thinking of new nuances to that, right? In, in, in Jesus, the entire fullness of God dwells like in bodily form. So this idea that Christ was something less than God is ridiculous. The idea that Christ was God light or something like that or isn't God or something or is merely the son of God but not actually God. No, Paul reminds us all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Now, I have so many questions about how that works, don't you? Like how he can fully be God but then also be human. Like this, I mean, theologians kicked this around for a couple millennia, so I'm not going to solve it for you here in a minute. But that's a, that's a tough one, right? Like if God is, if God is like uh, omnis- uh, omnipresent, right? If God can be everywhere at once, then how is he in Jesus who's in one place at one time? That's weird. Like there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of challenges. But that is a central doctrine of Christianity. It's a central uh, thing of our faith that Jesus is God. So it's appropriate that we seek to know him. And from an identity standpoint, I think this means that we need to locate our identity in him rather than in some, something else. Um, we, we need to be rooted in him because he actually is God. He is the creator and we are his creation. I could root my identity in so many things. And you could probably run through a list like this for yourself, right? If you said, okay, who am I? I am, so for me, I would say I'm an American. I'm of English and French heritage. 
I'm a Caucasian heterosexual male. I'm a Richmonder. I am a father. I am a husband. I am a son. I am a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, which is tragic, that last part. Um, But you could probably do something very similar, and you could sort of parse out your life and say, I am this, and I am this, and there's an intersection of some of these things, and then some of them aren't connected at at all. And and Paul reminds us that um, the head, the heart of the thing, though, is Christ, and and, and we need to be rooted in Him. Our primary identity needs to be in Him, not in all of those other things. I've heard it illustrated this way. It's like a deck of cards. Like, in your deck of cards, there's all sorts of cards, and things that make up who you are today, kind of in, 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 in the whole thing, you've got lots of them. But here's the question. Which card gets to be the high card? Which card, when placed over the others, wins? And I think the challenge for us as followers of Christ is to say, no, Jesus gets to be the high card in my life. He, he, he's the card that beats all the other cards. He's the card that speaks into all of the other cards. Him first, and then all of the other things fall in line. And this is important because if I'm a follower of him first, then I'm going to look to him first to understand issues of sexuality, to understand issues of gender, to understand issues of marriage. What does marriage mean? Understand race and ethnicity. What do these things mean in light of Christ? To understand um, peace and what does it mean to have peace and pursue peace? What, is it, what does social justice mean in light of what Christ, who Christ is and who he says we are? He builds the lens through which I view the world. And if I don't place him first, everything else is up for grabs. I could become, if I, if I build my primary identity on any of those other identities, it goes, it goes off track. If I, say, if I say my primary identity is that I am, a, is, is that I am white, you, you can see how that becomes racist, right? If I say my primary identity is, is hashtag America, right? And say, oh, you can see how that becomes nationalist. You know, if I say my primary identity is that I'm male, you can see how that becomes misogynist. Right? If you say my primary identity is all of these things and it's me, you can see how that becomes narcissist. Like All of these things have a shadow side and rooting our identity in any of them and saying this is primarily who I am, there's problems with it. And so Paul points us back to Christ. He is at the heart of, of the thing. Um, and he warns us against letting let other ideas, philosophies, um, capture us, make us enslaved. We talked about moralistic therapeutic deism last week. If you weren't here last week, you don't even know what that sentence just was right there. That was like a lot of, just go back and listen to it, right? Verse 10, let's continue on. So he says, in in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and he said, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He said, you are connected to Christ. Christ is God, and you've been filled in him. You you now have a connection to God through Jesus Christ. That's He's talking to believers. He says, that's what you've got. And he, and he refers to Jesus as the head of all rule and authority, which means all the rule and authority in your life is under him. So any leader position, anyone who, who leads in any way over you in any context that you're in is ultimately under Christ. So you may be frustrated with leadership, but know that it's under his rule and authority. You may, you may not like the president. You may not like the mayor. You may not like the governor. You may not like the, the head of your school. You may not like the, the boss at work. All authority is under him. He is, he is over all and has power uh, over all. He's the, he's the head of the thing. It's so in, in some ways, it doesn't matter so much who's king or president or governor or whatever. So how are we connected to him, though? Look at verse 11, and this is where it gets a little odd. 
And as Abby was reading it before, you probably saw this. Verse 11 says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, by triumphing over them in him. Now this is where it gets weird, right? Because it starts talking about circumcision and we're like, why are we bringing that up right now? That's kind of an odd... That's, that's a little medical, it's sort of religious, it's sort of weird. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a second, what that is. Literally, circumcision is, the, right, you know, do, I, do you want to explain it? You, literally, circumcision, I was like pulling backstage, like, what word should I use for this when I say it? Literally, circumcision is, with boys, cutting off flesh of their manhood, uh, at day eight, typically, is the Jewish law. In the, in the Old Testament, the ancient world, and Paul would have been familiar with this too, if you're Jewish, you have this flesh cut off of you uh, when you're a little boy. And also in the ancient world, if you're going to convert to Judaism, you had to be circumcised as adults. You can see why this wasn't popular. You can see why there's not a lot of people signing up to become Jews in the ancient world. They're like, can I just join a religion that you just pray or something? Or can I like ask someone into my heart or whatever? Like this is a little much, right? But that's the way it was in the ancient world. It was intense. And, but what is Paul saying about it? He's saying there's you, talking to the, the, the believers in Christ, an identity piece. He says, here's, here's how, you, how you got connected into Christ. Here's what happened. You, you experienced this circumcision kind of thing. Circumcision was a physical thing that Paul is saying, but there's a deeper thing going on in your heart, even in the physical thing. There's a deeper identity piece that happens that isn't just the physical, did you have flesh cut off kind of thing. And in the same way, he points to baptism. It's the only time you'll find baptism and circumcision mentioned together in the Bible. And he points to baptism and he says, you are when you are baptized, immersed in water, that is a physical thing. You are dunked. If you've ever seen it, someone in, a, in something like a hot tub, they're put down in water and then they're raised up out of the water. And he says, when you do that, yes, that's a physical thing, but there is a deeper spiritual reality going on in that thing that God is at work. And he says, you are buried with him and then raised. Jesus died and then he rose again. In baptism, you are buried, you die, the old you dies and you raise up as a new person. It is the ultimate do-over in life of like, I want to hit the reset button on this. I've gotten, you know, it's all gummed up and it's and it just full of, of sin and brokenness and all of this stuff. And I want to hit the reset button. And when we are baptized, that is, that's what happens. Now he says, through faith in, in, in God's power. So it's not if you don't have any faith in Christ and you get baptized, you're just getting wet. Nothing's going on there. We are saved by grace through faith, Scripture teaches in Ephesians. So it's not, okay, I just want to get wet. It's, I have faith in Christ, and in doing that, in getting baptized, God washes away my sins, and he puts his Holy Spirit inside of me. That's, that's what's going on. And Paul says, so this is how your identity, this is how it came to be. This is what's going on. You guys were all baptized into Christ. You started that process of being his people, of being reborn, of being made alive again. Over 200 people have been baptized in this church, many of them on stage. We're going to baptize people here in two weeks. And if you've not been baptized, I'd love to challenge you to step up and do it. 
to, to, to be obedient to Christ, to give your life to Christ for the first time, or maybe you feel like you already gave your life to Christ, but you, weren't been, you haven't been baptized, then be, then be obedient to that and just say, I'm going to do what Christ calls me to do. And I, and I want to join with him in this. If you've not been baptized, what are you waiting for? Write down on your connection card that you got when you came in. Write down, hey, baptism, I'm, I'm interested, and we will reach out to you and connect with you, and we can talk it through, grab a cup of coffee um, or, or whatever. But uh, I think it's going to be powerful. All right, let's just, uh, let's just finish on. Let me read you this last piece, verse 16. Therefore, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without, without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If, with Christ, you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that are all perishable perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, get this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, so he starts by saying, therefore, let no one pass judgment. In other words, because you have been baptized, because you are in Christ, because your identity is rooted there, therefore, what? Therefore, don't get distracted by this other stuff. So one, one idea of people, what people were getting distracted by in, in his context was worshiping angels. This is a thing in the city of Colossae. People are in, they have this sort of angelic cult worship thing. And he's like, get off of that. Christ is the heart of it, not angels. We don't get into angels as much. Yes, we make movies about them, about them coming to earth and falling in love with people. We have television shows about how they appear. But generally... Most of us have too much, like, I got to get to work, and I got to raise my family, or I got to find the person I want to date, or whatever. We have too much other things going on than to worry about angels. But Paul says, hey, they're not it. Christ is it. Like, don't get, don't get hung up on that stuff. That, they're, they're not where it's at. They are, the New Testament tells us they are ministering spirits, spirits sent to help us. So they're real, but, but humanity, we are... Uh, the ones loved by God, the, the, the crown of his, of his creation. So he says, don't get hung up on that kind of stuff, on, on all that like uh, side, side issues. And then he gives us another danger. Um, and, and he says, don't get hung up on what he calls asceticism. Now, asceticism literally is like doing things to punish the flesh in order to purify the spirit. So an extreme example is like whipping yourself, right? Like, and that sounds weird, but Monks, priests, I mean, there's long history of this in, in Christianity, of people not doing what Paul says, people saying, I'm going to do it, use ascetic practices in order to make myself holy. A, a, a good example of it is probably fasting, where you say, I'm going to deny food to the body so that I can focus on God and, and, and get connected to him. That's not a bad thing. Um, it, it is, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. That is, that, that is a good thing. Um, but it gets uh, out of control. Because we rely on the ascetic practice and thinking that it's going to actually change us, which is what he calls self-made religion. We, we think this is going to really move us. I mean, you can, you can give yourself electric shocks every time you lust, and that's not going to solve the problem. It's not. It's not going to address your heart. Because that's what really 
That's where it's at. That's the level of our sin, of our loves, of our desires, of the will. All of these things are, are inside. And, and you can beat yourself and snap a Band-Aid on your arm, every, uh, not a Band-Aid, a, ri- a rubber band on your hand every time you have a lustful thought. And you can, you can do all of these things. But if you don't address your heart, you're not really going to change. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is all over that of saying, what is the deeper issue? Let's go, in, let's go into the thing even farther. There's been some weird examples of history of people trying to um, use physical and external means in order to handle um, spiritual and heart issues. Uh, one of them is the first roller coaster in America. It's called the Switchback Railway, and it was at Coney Island in New York in the late 1800s. And the guy who designed it designed this roller coaster, and the way it worked was you sit in the car and it goes down the tracks and down and, you know, yay, and then it comes to a hill and then all the passengers would get out and some workers would come out and they would push it up the hill and then the passengers would climb some steps and get back in it and then they would ride it again. Sounds awful, right? Like, this is a great roller coaster. But people loved it. They loved it. But the reason the roller coaster was there is because Coney Island in that day, and maybe it still is today, I don't know, Coney Island in that day was designed to be what was a den of sin. It was prostitution and, and alcohol. And there was a lot of that. And the guy who designed the, rail, the roller coaster that wanted to have good, clean family fun that would pull people away from the prostitution and alcohol. So it was like, we, you know, enjoy this. Don't look over there. Like, and that was the idea. Interesting idea. I'm sure people enjoyed the roller coaster. I just don't think it slowed down the sinning too much at Coney Island. I, I think there's probably still plenty of that going on because that doesn't quite quite get at it, right? Here's an even crazier one. Uh, in the 1800s, a Presbyterian minister was really concerned about how, uh, about our sexual urges and wanted to restrain them, and he thought that he could do it through food, so he designed a cracker that you could eat, and if you would eat it, it, would rest- it was so bland that if you ate it, it would restrain your sexual urges. His name was Graham. Sylvester Graham d- developed the Graham cracker with its intent being restrain your sexual urges. And we as a society were like, let's put marshmallows and chocolate on that thing. Who cares about restraining urges? Chocolate. This is going to be awesome. Like that, bland. We don't need that. That cracker's just a little plate for marshmallows and chocolate. You know, that's what we did with his great idea, right? I think it's just so weird. Why would you say like a graham cracker is going to restrain your sexual urges? I mean, at least go for a rice cake or something like a... If I have a rice cake, I don't want to do anything. So that, that may be more effective or something, but, but, that, but that was the idea. Let me do a physical thing that's going to restrain the spiritual thing. And it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work because it doesn't address your heart. You don't get inside there and, and, do, and, and, and do the work. And, and Paul warns us about that. You have to, if you really want to do the heart work, then you need to absorb the Scripture. And know it and, and, and learn it and let it challenge you. And, and follow what it's teaching you. Not make rules about the rules, which is what our hearts like to do. Let me get a rule. It's going to be hard to follow. I'm going to make rules about the rules. I'm going to make fences around the fences. I'm going to make boundaries around the boundaries, gates upon the gates. Like we, we add all of these things in so that we can be obedient. And I get it. I understand there's value to it. Look, if you're lusting, put filters, put serious filters over every digital device that you've ever seen or you ever will see put some sort of filter, accountability software. These are good ideas. If alcohol is a struggle, do not go to an open bar. Like, that's just unwise, right? Like, putting some boundaries in place are good. But if you don't ever address your heart and you don't ever look at 
why do I want this? What, what's going on in here? You'll eventually knock the fences down. You'll eventually figure out a way to get around them, to tunnel under them, to crawl over them. So notice your own, own heart there, because if you don't, it doesn't matter how strong the fence is. You know, the thing I notice is reading through Colossians just kind of, and we've been reading it, if you've been reading it along with the Rooted Study, the thing you'll notice in going through that is how much Jesus comes up just in this one chapter. And you go, well, it's in the Bible. Of course Jesus should come up. But man, Paul's a guy, and he's just, and he's, and he's gotten a relationship with God, and, he, and he's poured his life now into this, and, it, and he points out how much it matters, how often in, just in this one chapter, he says, you receive Christ Jesus Lord, so walk in him, the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ, the circumcision of Christ, you are buried with him, um, all these things are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, if with Christ you died, like he's talking about baptism again, and, and, and giving your life to him, like he's pointing out all these things, and he's saying, look, at the heart of the thing is Christ, the heart of your identity is is Jesus. And he wants us to know that our identity needs, is to be rooted in the one who created us um, and, and, and who knows us. And this, I've been reminded of this recently because if you have a job that you like, then there's a real temptation to find your identity there. If you have a, if you have a family that you love, there's a real temptation to find your identity there. And, and I've had to think about that lately. I, it, when things are good in the church, I can find my identity there. When things aren't going well in the church, I can find my identity there. And it's so easy for me, and, and I think it, it is easy for you, depending on, on your career field as well. But it's easy for me because I work for Jesus to act, you know, like the man, like literally the man. I work for him, and so I can be like, oh, you know, this is where I should find my primary identity. It's like, no, that's dangerous. It would be so, it's so easy for me to keep my eye on the scoreboard instead of on the ball. Instead of rooting my identity in the Jesus who's the lover of my soul. So the challenge for you, for me, for all of us, um, is, is to really think through this. What, when you think, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because everything else is going to fall into line behind that and it will define your identity. Other people cannot define your identity. They're flawed. They can take a crack at it, but they, but they can't define you. And it, and it isn't healthy if you let them. So what, so what would it look like to maybe make being his child your primary identity and then let all of the other pieces fall into place? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be your children and to fully grasp what that means to uh, think rightly about who you are in all of creation and who we are as your created beings. Uh, God, thank you for speaking into our identity in a way that no one else can. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.